Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. Uh, Go ahead and get your Bibles open to the book of Matthew, chapter number 13. Matthew, chapter number 13. If you were to go home tonight and go to bed, fall asleep, and you woke up in the middle of the night and your house was on fire, but your, your kids are safe, your pets are safe, your family's safe, your mother-in-law's trapped, so that's good. No, everybody in the home, all animals, all people have gotten out and they're safe. What is one thing that you would save? Is it a photo album? Is it your, your passport? Maybe it's your, maybe it's your cell phone or a laptop. Uh, I'll tell you what I would save, April's car keys. Say why? Because she's got a fancier car that has a computer chip in it and if you've ever burned up one of those keys as I have, it's hundreds of dollars to replace. Uh, so I'd get those keys. But whatever, whatever it is that you're thinking, I would go save this. I would save uh, my, 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 my musical instrument. I would save my, my journals. I would save whatever. My Xbox is probably what Connor's thinking. Uh, whatever it is that you would risk your life to save, it, it shows how important it is to you. The value you place on something is seen in what you are willing to give up for it. Jesus, throughout scriptures, especially in Matthew, Jesus explained over and over again that finding the kingdom of God is like this. It is giving up something of incredible value so you can find him. Now, the parables we're going to look at this morning, it applies to, to, to both groups of people that are either here or listening. It applies to the saved people. You found Christ through salvation. You heard the gospel. You heard how Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross in your place. And he absorbed the wrath of God and was buried and rose three days again. And all you have to do is put your faith in him and his finished work on the cross for salvation. You heard that. You believe that. You put your faith in that. But through the years, maybe you've grown a little cold on God. Maybe you don't. When you read the Bible, you don't see the truth like you used to. It doesn't come alive like it used to. You pray, and it seems like it's just going through the motions, and you're just doing a ritual. You come to church because, hey, that's what good Christians do. We come to church, but you leave here happy to be going home, and I'm glad I don't got to do that for another six days. There's also some of you here who are not yet saved. Maybe you think you are because, again, you're in church. You're in church on a Sunday morning, on a cold Sunday morning. Look, I woke up this morning... I saw the temperature, and you know what I thought? Man, I'd like to stay in bed all day. I sure would like to just snuggle up in bed, watch some football, or, well, it's, it's professional football, so no, uh, watch some TV and just, just, just stay in bed all day in the covers, because it's cold. But you probably thought the same thing, but you came. You're a good person. You came to church. You're listening to me preach at you for an hour and a half. I'm not going to preach for an hour and a half. 
but you think you're saved, but you're not because you still haven't found the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, finding salvation or finding a true relationship with God is, is something that's incredible, something that, that is finding something of such incredible value that you're willing to give up everything for it. We see this in the two parables we're going to look at today. Now, the two parables we're going to look at today are the two shortest parables that Jesus ever taught. And they're found in Matthew chapter number 13. So look at Matthew 13, starting in verse number 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. That's one parable. So one story Jesus taught right there, that's it, one verse. Here's the second parable, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So those, those three verses right there contain two parables that teach several truths for us today. And they make up really one main point. The kingdom of God, salvation, or for the believer, a thriving relationship with God is indescribably valuable. In the first story, this man finds a treasure randomly. We don't know how he finds it. We don't know if he was hired to plow the field and just kind of stumbled upon it. We don't know if he was cutting through the field one day on a shortcut and just found it. But whatever, whatever circumstances happens, this man is not looking for treasure. He's just going about his day. He's just walking through the field or he's just doing his day-to-day -day duties. He's just, he's just living his life. And he finds a priceless treasure. Now, who wouldn't want that? I've seen videos on YouTube, and I'm not sure if they're fake or not, of people remodeling their homes, and all of a sudden they find a safe in the floor, and they crack open the safe, and there's, there's money in there. And they're like, oh, this is money from, from 1944, which you look at, and you're like, oh, that's a new $100 bill. So I'm not sure that's, for, that's actually true. Uh, but people have found all kinds of things. You hear stories about people finding secret rooms or finding uh, incredible valued items in their home. I remember when we first bought our house, we, we remodeled the basement. And it had this drop ceiling on there, and the drop ceiling was terrible. Uh, and the, the lights that they had in the, ba in the basement were just open light bulbs stuck on a raft on a uh, floor joist with a tin pipe pan next to it, so it shone down. They were terrible lights. So we, we ripped out the entire ceiling and redid it. And I found some interesting items in the attic. I found some pretty old marijuana. Um, I found some other vintage items, uh, but nothing of great value. I didn't find anything that was worth keeping. I, I found things, and I'm like, okay, time to get rid of this real, real quick, and I burn it all, but I didn't find anything that was of great value. But who, who, who among us wouldn't like to be doing some work in your backyard, and all of a sudden you find a bag, and you dig up the bag, and you open it up, and it's full of gold coins? We'd love that. We'd be, we'd be just ecstatic about that. Or... You walk outside, maybe you walk outside the store, you walk outside your house and you see a piece of paper 
flutter around so you pick it up and it's the, a lottery ticket that just happens to have the jackpot uh, winning, the, 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 the Powerball winning numbers on there. You didn't play the lottery, so you're good on that. God gave you the couple billion dollars. That would be incredible. We'd love that. Because, you know, just stumbling upon something that is life changing. Now, in this time that Jesus is talking, finding buried treasure was pretty common. People didn't have banks. So if you've got a bunch of money, what do you do with it? You bury it. You hide it to keep it safe. They didn't have, they didn't have safes. So they, they had to do something creative. And a lot of times, if you'd be you know, living in your life in your town and your town gets invaded, which happens a lot, and you didn't want the invading army to take all your wealth and take all your gold and your silver, so you would hide it. You would take it out in the field and bury it so they wouldn't find it. And then sometimes the person who buried it would die. So no one knows where this money is. Uh, and so you would die in the attack and nowhere, no one would know where it was. There was an archaeological dig done several years ago in a town called Qumran. And in this town in, in, in Israel, they found a map that had 640 locations where people had buried treasure throughout the years. Now, they, they found a lot of those sites, and most of them were empty. A couple of them had a little things in there. But they found a map that had 640 hiding spots where people had buried treasure. So a lot of people in this day, they lived with the excitement of possibly finding an incredible treasure. So when Jesus tells this story, people are, they're wrapped, they're like, oh man, I, I gotta hear this. This is, this is something I wanna happen to me. Where I'm just walking around and I find this treasure and it changes my life. And so they're excited by this. They understand what's going on. But it does raise a question. The field wasn't his. Again, we don't know what he's doing there. We don't know if he's just cutting through. We don't know if he's plowing the field. We don't know what's going on. But the field's not his. And he finds a treasure. Now, again, that's like someone, you hire someone to do some work in your backyard. And they find a bag full of gold coins in your backyard. You're going to want to know about that, right? You don't want them to rebury it and come to you and say, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to buy your house from you. I'll give you a million dollars for it. Uh, that'll make you think, go, uh, why, why, why do you want to buy my house all of a sudden? And where are you getting this money? But so this guy, he doesn't, he doesn't tell the, the landowner. He reburies the, the, the treasure so no one else will find it. I'm trying to read up a little bit. So they agree on a price, and whatever the price is, the, the man who found the treasure, he has to go and he has to sell everything he owns so he can afford this land. I mean, he sells everything. He sells his oxen. He sells his tools. If he has other property, he sells that property. He, he gets rid of everything he owns so he has enough money to come and buy this property. And then we get to the most important words in the story. Again, look at verse number 11. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a treasure hid in a field. And the, wit, and the which, when a man fa hath found, he hideth it, and for joy buys the field. Now, if you woke up tomorrow morning, and you lost everything you owned, would you be happy about it? 
No. If you woke up tomorrow morning and you had such a huge debt, you had to sell everything you own to pay it back. We'd be devastated. This guy lost everything. But he is ecstatic because he knows what he is getting in return is greater than anything he owned anyway. Jesus said, that's like finding the kingdom of God. That's what salvation and a relationship with God is like, according to Jesus. And the second parable makes the exact same point, but it's got some few differences. Of course, this guy, we don't know, we don't know what his financial situation is, uh, but he, he had enough property, he could sell what he owned to buy this land and then receive this great treasure. But he wasn't looking for treasure. He just stumbled upon it. The second guy was looking for treasure. He's a pearl merchant. And so he is, he is an incredibly wealthy man uh, who discovers what the Bible calls a pearl of great price. Now, again, unlike the first guy, he's looking for pearls. He spent his lifetime looking for these treasures. Pearls in this time were the most valuable gem in the ancient world because they were extremely hard to get. Now, they're not super easy to get today. Uh, if you get, you know, wild pearls, you can farm them and, you know, get, make, you know, farm pearls yourself and make it a little easier. But if you want to go and find a pearl in the wild, you typically have to go off the coast of, of, of uh, Australia now is where they go. But even in this time, you have to dive very deep to find the pearls. They're not just, you know, washing up on the shore. You got to go pretty deep to find the, per the, the oysters and the mussels that have the pearls in them. Uh, but today you've got diving equipment. You can put on some scuba gear, put on an air tank, and go down there and spend a couple hours searching on the bottom of the ocean floor. You couldn't do that then. You could, you, know, you could search as deep as you could hold your breath. So pearls were very rare. They were very expensive because they were hard to get. Uh, only the wealthiest people in the world had them. It's actually said that Cleopatra's fortune was mainly consisted of two pearls that she owned. And today, they would be valued at $4 billion for two pearls. So this guy has spent his life buying, selling, searching for pearls. And he finds one that is of such incredible value, that is so beautiful, that just like the first guy, he sells everything he owns. He's, again, this is a wealthy man, so he sells his house, his, his property, every other pearl he owns. He sells everything so he can buy this one pearl of a great price. So this, these two stories are you know, two drastically different men. Two men, one's a blue-collar, one's a white-collar worker. One uh, had very little, one had a lot, one was looking for treasure, one was just walking along. They had different backgrounds. They had different futures ahead of them. But they both found a treasure that made everything they owned seem worthless. And Jesus said, that's what it's like discovering the kingdom of God. So these, these parables, they tell us three lessons. Here's the first one. Number one, the kingdom is hidden. Connor, the kingdom 
is hidden. And this, this theme is seen throughout the book of Matthew. We saw it last week, when we, uh, two weeks ago, when we looked at the first parable where Jesus talks about the, the seed being sown on the ground and some bringing forth 10, some 60, some 100 fold. And so it is, it is seen throughout that not everyone sees the truth of God. Not everyone sees the beauty of Christ because it is hidden from those who are not looking for it. You know why most people miss salvation, miss the truth of the gospel, and die in their sins and go to hell? Because they're not looking for it. Because they don't care. You know why most believers live a lackluster spiritual life where, yeah, they're going to heaven when they die, but they're making no impact on, on the world with the gospel. They're not, when they read their Bible, they're just going through the motions. When they pray, they're not really hearing. You know why a lot of believers struggle in their walk with God? Because they're not really looking for God. Because here's the truth. When you look for God, Jesus says, if you look for me, you're going to find me. But when you find him, he's going to change you. And we don't want to be changed. We want to punch our ticket to heaven, live our life our way, and just have God leave us. And that's not what the kingdom of God is like. That's not what salvation is. That's not what walking with Jesus is. When you truly find him, everything about you changes. And that's what these stories are telling us. So most people, they miss God because they're not looking for him. Well, we see a lot of things in Scripture. One thing we see... It's on the screen here. The glory of Jesus was hidden in his earthly body. You know, we've all seen, now, no one has ever seen a true picture of Jesus because there was no, you know, Israeli tribe called Kodak that made these things. But we've all seen these kind of ideas of what people think Jesus looked like. I remember several years ago, uh, there was a, a book I read uh, because I didn't believe it, uh, about a little boy who died and went to heaven, and he had the vision of heaven. And you say, you don't believe he died and went to heaven? No, because usually when people get to heaven, they don't come back. You know why? Because why would you? Why would, when you when I, if, I got, if I died and went to heaven and Jesus showed me around and showed me all the glory and said, okay, now it's time for you to go back, I'd be like, uh, no. I'm grabbing onto you, and I ain't letting go. I'm not going back there. Have you seen back there, Jesus? It's a mess. This is great. I'm staying here. But you know, I read the story, and it had at the end, it had this, this painting that a girl had painted about what she, she had a vision of Jesus. And it's, a, it's a, a beautiful portrait, very handsome, striking man. I don't believe that's Jesus. Say, why? Because the Bible says he wasn't anything special to look at. Isaiah 53 says that, that his, his comely, there was no comeliness in him. I've seen other pictures, other, you know, dramatizations or paintings people look like, and it's a, an average-looking guy, nothing special. That's Jesus. There was nothing magnificent about him. When you looked at him, you didn't think, that's the Messiah. Look at how strong and tall and powerful and beautiful he is. He didn't attract people to him by his beauty. He didn't want to. That's not the point. He doesn't want you following him because you're going to get power and he's the, the best-looking Messiah out there. 
There's nothing special about him. He didn't look like anything incredible. He wasn't physically impressive. In the flesh, he didn't look like the divine son of God. You know, the son of God created the world and everything in it. He created the universe and the stars and the planets. He created the human born, the human brain. He created everything we see. But he was born into the world through the messy process of childbirth. You hear people talk about childbirth like, it's such a beautiful experience. No, it ain't. You ever been a part of it? No, it ain't. It's messy. It's hard. April says it hurts worse than an appendicitis. I don't believe her. But uh, and even if it does, when you're done with childbirth, you know what you get? A baby. When you're done with an appendicitis surgery, you know what you have? Nothing. Uh, but anyway, uh, I'm still going to harp on that, that this was harder. Uh, but anyway, it's a, and, and, that's, and it's even messy today. Can you imagine how hard it was when Mary gave birth? Not in a hospital with epidurals and nurses and all that stuff. She was in a barn with Joseph. And that's it. I figure he's running around boiling sheets or something because that's all we know what to do. She didn't have, a, she didn't have a, a handmaid there. She didn't have a nursemaid there. It was just her and Joseph and a donkey. And he was born through that messy process. He grew up among the poorest people in the world. He, didn't, he, didn't, he wasn't born in a palace and raised in royalty. He was born in a barn and raised in poverty. He dressed in ordinary clothes. He didn't dress in royal robes. He never led an army. He never won an election. He never got an award. And that's why so many people missed him. They weren't looking for what he, they were looking for a king, a warrior, a conqueror. But that was intentional. See, God doesn't want people to follow him to gain power. He wants people who love him and loves and love what he loves. Not that people that want beauty and power for themselves. You know how I know April loves me? Because I'm broke. She's still here. Look at this. She's still here. So I'm like, yeah, she's got to love me because ain't nobody that without love is going to stick around with a Baptist pastor who looks like this when they could do whatever they would have, you know, somebody wealthier and richer. Now, Alexis thinks she should leave me for Chris Evans. And uh, I told her, I said, hey, if he offers, I'll take the alimony from him. You know, we can work something out here. But anyway, uh, that's how I know. And, you know, she's like, I'm never going to give you up for Chris Evans. I'm like, really? R really? But that's how I know she loves me. Because she's not like, oh, I'm with you because of your money. Bad choice, mom, you know, lady. Uh, I'm with you because of your looks. Well, you can get better looks out there. And that's what Jesus, Jesus doesn't want people with him because, oh, I'm going to follow Jesus because he's the most powerful God and he'll give me everything I need and he'll help me be successful and he'll give me money. Jesus wants people who follow him because they're like, I just, I've got to have him. Doesn't make sense, but I've got to have him. I'm going to follow him because I love him. If he had come in power and beauty, he would have attracted people that wanted those things for themselves. So he hid his power in an earthly disguise 
so only those who are looking would see him. God hides his power and glory in a plain package. You have to look for him to find him. Second thing we notice about the kingdom of God being hidden, the power of the gospel is hidden in its simplicity. The gospel message is not hard. God came, lived a sinless life, died on the cross in our place, rose again three days later. All you got to do is put your faith and trust in him and you get salvation. It is a gift freely given to anyone who's looking for it and who accepts it. It's not very impressive, especially how we receive the gospel message. We get the gospel because it's, it's preached to us, because the word of God is given to us. And you can, you can dismiss it, you can ignore it, you can argue with the truth, but the truth of God is so powerful, is so life-changing, that when you accept the truth of God, it brings new life. We saw last week, Jesus, he compared the word of God to an acorn. You know, an acorn is so small, you can crush it under your foot. But if it gets buried and takes root, it can grow up into a mighty oak tree. In the same way, Jesus said his word in the mouths of ordinary people changes lives. It's simple enough for a child to understand. But it's powerful enough to remove the penalty and the power of sin. That's why preaching is so important. That's why I take so much time to prepare the message that God lays on my heart. Paul compared preaching to Jesus telling a lame man to be healed. If there's someone who's, who's crippled and I tell them, be healed, you know what's going to happen? Nothing. But if Jesus says, be healed, you know what's going to happen? They're going to be healed. So how do you know that? Because Jesus said, Lazarus, wake up, and he came back from the dead. And you know why he said Lazarus? Because if he had just said, wake up, every dead person within his hearing would have gotten up. So he had to say, Lazarus, everybody, everybody else, you stay dead. Lazarus, it's time for you to come up. The word of God is incredibly powerful. When I'm preaching the word of God, if you receive it, by faith, it imparts to you the very power of God. See, I want to know what God says so I can give it to you clearly and truthfully. That's why I don't give you my opinions about pop culture and politics and all those things. Because you know what my opinion will do for your life? Nothing but make you mad at me. It's not opinion time. It is Giving the truth of the word of God time. You know, they don't, my opinions don't change lives, but God, God's word does. Paul says that preaching is simple on the surface. You know, preaching the word of God doesn't take skill, doesn't take training, just takes someone who's willing to give the truth. And look, when I say preaching the word of God, I don't mean just what I'm doing up here. Preaching the word of God is simply giving the truth of God to people, whether it's to a lost soul, whether it's to a believer who's struggling, it is giving the truth of the Word of God. You know, to preach the Word of God, all you got to do is read the Word of God and, and tell what it means truthfully. But the words of God 
bring the power of God. So I study. I pray. I ask God what to say. So, so it's his words and his power behind them. The power of the gospel is hidden in simplicity. Again, it's so simple, a child can understand it. But it's so powerful and so profound that Peter says angels don't understand it. Angels cannot grasp why God would come to earth, be born of a virgin, live a, a human life, and die on the cross absorbing the wrath of our sin. They can't wrap their minds around that. And look, they were there at creation. They had a front row seat when God said, let there be everything. They were there when the, the Red Sea was split by God. They were there when God made a donkey speak. But the gospel, they go, I don't get it. I can't understand it. But it's simple for us. The beauty of the gospel is hidden in simplicity. And another thing, the beauty of the gospel is hidden in ordinary believers. With the instruments of the gospel that God uses on earth are just ordinary people. This is you and me. First Corinthians 1 says, for, for observe your calling, brothers, among you, not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, and not many noble men were called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And God has chosen the base things of the world and the things which are despised, yes. And he chose things which did not exist to bring to nothing things that do. So that no flesh should boast in his presence, but because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who God made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. You know what Paul's saying there? Saying God didn't choose the wisest, the noblest, the, the strongest, or the smartest to share his words. He chose the dumbest, the weakest, the most people, the, the one. He chose the people that, the, that others would look at and go, Really? That makes me feel real good. When I read that and Paul says, God didn't choose smart people. God chose you. Like, oh, okay. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, God. He didn't choose good people. He chose me. So, you know, he, 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 he chose the foolish of the world. That's how God works. There's a, a book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. Uh, and this, this whole book is, uh, the premise of it is there is a senior demon writing to a junior demon to teach the junior demon how to keep the man he's in charge of from finding God. Uh, and this guy starts going to church. So the senior demon writes to him and says, play up the disappointment he feels at church. Make him notice the voices out of tune around him. The odd clothes people are wearing. The cheap Christian jewelry. How so many of them are overweight and unattractive. He will believe that because some of the people look ridiculous... That the religion of these people must be ridiculous also. That's what a lot of people do. They get distracted by the followers of Jesus and miss the truth of Jesus. They miss what God's trying to teach them because they're looking at the instrument God used to give them the truth. And they think, well, if that's who follows God, then it can't be, can't be right. We've got to go somewhere else. The message can't be true if the followers have so many problems. 
If they seem so broken, how can what they're saying be true? That's how God works. God doesn't want you to attract it to his followers, but to him. That's why the prosperity gospel is so damaging. Because it says, hey, if you, if you follow Jesus like I do and you do what I say, then you'll be wealthy and successful like I am. And nothing will go wrong. And if you just, you know, you just give me all your money, then God's going to bless you with even more money. And it's, just, it's, it's, a, it's a lie of the devil trying to get you to follow a shiny object so the truth of the Word of God. God puts his glory in broken instruments because he wants us more impressed with the truth than the impressiveness of what he's using. So the first thing we see in these parables is the gospel is hidden so most people miss it. The second thing we see is the gospel offers greater joy. I said earlier, the three most important words in these parables is and for joy. Again, normally losing everything is devastating. But these men were filled with joy because what they were gaining was so much more valuable than anything they gave up. Does that describe your encounter with Jesus? When you got saved, when you heard Jesus talk to you, was it something that brought you incredible joy? Here's a question. Is Jesus to you, is he worth giving everything up for? Because he's the greater treasure. Now, the truth is, he, he is. He is worth you giving everything up for. But do we understand that? For most people, the kingdom of God is it's like a never-ending to-do list of things you can't do or have to do so you don't feel guilty. Or it's like being tied to a ball and chain that keeps you weighed down, that keeps you from having fun. It shows us how little we know about Jesus and what he truly offers us. See, this, this parable confronts the deeply ingrained myth in our culture that God gets mad when you get happy. God doesn't want you to have fun because sin is fun. So if you're having fun, you're sinning. So God doesn't want you fun, having fun. God wants you miserable and, 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 and ashes and sackcloth and oh, woe is me, but I got eternity one day when I died. That's not what God wants. God wants you happy. God wants you to have fun. God wants you to live a joy-filled life. The problem is he doesn't want us finding joy and happiness in anything but him. God doesn't want you to forsake happiness. God just wants you to realize you find true happiness in a relationship with him. See, it doesn't glorify God for you to serve him out of duty. So God doesn't get mad when you are happy. He gets upset for you because you choose to look for happiness in something besides him. You know, the Bible says that God is a jealous God. He's not jealous because he's insecure. He's jealous because he understands and he knows that the only place you're going to find true joy and true happiness is in him. It is joy in him alone that sustains a believer. Remember what Nehemiah says? The joy of the Lord is my strength. 
My strength doesn't come from external things. My strength comes from a relationship with God. The joy of the Lord helps us obey. The joy of the Lord gives us hope in the trials of life. David said in Psalms 4, You have placed gladness in my heart that is better than when their corn and their new wine abound. God gives better joy than anything that this life can offer. His joy, a relationship with him, makes everything else in the world seem like nothing. The gospel offers greatest joy. Third thing, the gospel requires leaving everything. The gospel requires leaving everything. In both these parables, the men left everything to get the treasure that they found. That is a requirement for the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that all of you this morning when you leave here have to go and sell everything you own and come back and bring the money to me. If you want to, feel free. I mean, I'm not going to stop you, uh, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying you got to give up all worldly pleasures and all worldly items and just, you know, live in a ditch somewhere because Jesus is the greatest thing and you don't need anything else. No, but that, that's where accepting Jesus means giving up everything else. You know, most of us, most people, they want to have the treasure without letting anything else go. We want Jesus without giving anything up for him. We want religion instead of surrender. And Jesus wants surrender completely. See, religion is our way to pay off God. You do the minimum amount of things necessary to make God happy or make sure he doesn't get mad at you and, and smite you too much. And, and so if you do those things, and then you'll be fine. God will be happy. You'll be happy. And you don't got to lose anything. That's not repentance. It doesn't bring joy. God wants followers who see him as a treasure. He wants those that see him as greater than anything on earth and who are willing to give up everything to follow him. See, I'm not telling you to go home and sell everything, but if God comes to you and says, I want you to give up your job so you can get this other job that doesn't pay as well, but you're going to be a witness for me there. Or it's better for your walk with God there. Or I want you to sell your house and go be a missionary overseas. Are we willing to do it? We're like, oh, God, I don't, I don't know. I spent a lot of money remodeling that house. Put a lot of work into my career. See, God doesn't want us to do it. He wants us to be willing to do it. But see, here's the thing. God doesn't ask us to do that most of the time. Most of the time, God's going to say, hey, will you give up your selfishness? and your greed, and your jealousy, and your unforgiveness, and your, will you give that up for me? We're like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang on to those things. Those things don't bring joy. They don't bring peace in our life. See, coming to Jesus doesn't mean we know where he's leading us, or we know how we will obey. It just means that we recognize him as the only treasure we can't live without. There's a, uh, uh, outside of Cairo, Egypt, there's a, a small unmarked or a small grave in a kind of out-of-the-way location. It's the west resting place of William Borden. He was heir of the Borden Milk Corporation. Anybody know Borden Milk? 
They're still around today. Uh, but in this time, before he died, they were the, one of the largest companies in America. Uh, he graduated Yale in 1909, and he was offered control of the company, which at the time was worth hundreds of billions of dollars in today's economy. But when he was in college, he became a Christian. And he felt God was calling him to go preach the gospel to the Muslim world. So he refused position of CEO. He gave up all the money, all the power, all the prestige that was going to come to him with that title, gave everything up, went to Egypt to preach the gospel. After four months, he contracted spinal meningitis. He died at age 25. Before he died, one of the nurses that was taking care of him asked him if he had any regrets about this decision. I mean, he, you gave up a fortune to come to Egypt to die just four months later. And he said, I have no regrets for following Christ. On his tombstone is written, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. When you understand the value of Christ, that kind of sacrifice makes sense. He gave up everything for us. He gave up heaven. He left the glory of heaven to come to this earth and live on this earth. And he, he gave up his, his fellowship with God the Father as he, the sins of the world were placed on him. And for a brief time, fellowship between Jesus and God the Father was broken. He gave it all up for us. Why would we not be willing to give up everything for him? He is a treasure in the field worth giving up everything for. He is the treasure worth leaving everything for. That's what it means to follow Christ. To be willing to give up everything with no regrets. Because he is worth far more than anything this world has to offer. See, walking with Christ means looking for him finding joy in him, and being willing to give up everything for him. Can we honestly look at our heart and say, I've done that. I've looked for him and found him. When I found him, I had incredible joy, and whatever he asks, I'll gladly give up. Because again, here's the thing. He's 99% chance he's not going to ask you to go home, sell everything you own to go on the mission field. He may ask you to give up some bad habits. He may ask you to give up some TV shows or websites you go to. He may ask you to give up that bitterness you've been holding on to about that person who hurt you years ago. He may ask you to give up some, some comfort because he wants you to go tell someone about him. Is, it, is he enough that you can say, God, whatever you ask, I'll give it up and I'll follow you. Because you are worth far more than anything this world has to offer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.